I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the... Dignity of man. Dignity. Boy, you know, you would think after all this time of all the uh, terrible things that have been done to various different people, that by now in American history, there'd be more acceptance of dignity and that'd be a bigger part of who we are. Regular listeners have often heard me say, the one thing I've learned from history is that we never learn from history. But that is, of course, an exaggeration. And just as we talk about the 60s or the 80s, history, of course, can't be broken down and neatly defined by 10-year periods, nor do century marks provide neat dividing lines. But to see where we are today, the context of where we were can be uniquely instructive and useful in taking on current challenges, especially if they show themselves to be continuances of where we used to be. Internationally, 1919, 100 years ago, was the year of the Treaty of Versailles, wherein the victors of the First World War divided up the spoils between themselves, drew arbitrary maps across old empires guaranteeing today's Mideast Wars and imposing uh, crushing punishment on the vanquished nations, guaranteeing the rise of a fierce German dictator. Could have learned, but didn't. On today's show, we'll climb into our Wayback Machine, to compare political and social life and justice in America today with where we were 100 years ago in 1919. With a focus on immigration issues, which has seemed to the casual observer so incongruous to our history, but in reality is surprisingly reminiscent of where we were 100 years ago. Our returning guest is Arnold Skip Isaacs, who has written a widely published article called Looking Back at 1919, Immigration, Race, and women, women's rights then and now. Skip Isaacs is a journalist and Tom Dispatch regular based in Maryland. He's written widely on refugee and immigration issues. He's the author of From Troubled Lands, Listening to Pakistani and Afghan Americans in Post-9-11 America, and two books relating to the Vietnam War. His website is www.arnoldisaacs.net. As has been said, history may not repeat itself, but man, it sure does rhyme. Thanks for being with us, Skip. Your piece brings up immigration policy, religious and racial bigotry, and terrorism fears in America in 1919, offering an eerie sense of decades melting away and past and present blurring together. As an old 60s-era optimist, that's me, the, uh, that unpleasant reality is indeed very disappointing. Back then, I was naive enough to think that racism would have been merely an old rotten memory by now. Boy, was I wrong. You're right that many of the underlying attitudes and the tone of these issues 100 years ago were strikingly similar to those that royal our society today, which isn't to say there's been no progress toward justice. Indeed, there has. But but let's start the discussion by focusing on where we were 100 years ago in terms of race relations. It does seem to me that 
though we're in the more sophisticated 21st century now, and, and for example, while explicit Jim Crow laws are gone and voting rights laws have long existed, though they've been withered away a little bit, I sense new, more subtle ways to achieve the same goals of racial discrimination as back then. Can you cite some examples on, on racism in particular, different new, subtle ways to achieve the same goals as 100 years ago? Well, I'm not sure that uh, we have new ways to achieve those goals. I think what we are realizing is that we did not uh, succeed very, very, com- certainly not completely, in removing the barriers to equal economic opportunity and equal sort of status in the society that we thought we had removed. And that's what is such a weird and, and sort of chilling echo from 1919. If, uh, you know, 1919 came along 54 years after, if I'm, my arithmetic is correct, yeah. after 1865, after the right. end of the civil rights, the, the civil, civil war. war. Right. And the the end, and supposedly the end of slavery, mm-hmm. and the great promise of the immediate post Civil War period of freedom and justice and all that sort of thing. But fifty four years later, uh, the slave slavery had not been reinstated, but mm-hmm. seer, severe uh, racial oppression continued to reign in the South. It was almost the slave system had almost been reincarnated in a somewhat different form, right. and the hopes of that period had been crushed uh we are now in 2019 we're 50 exactly the same number of years away from for one example the voting rights bill Uh voting rights law of 1965 exactly 100 years later and the if you go back a few years before that the, the civil rights movement martin luther king's march on washington and all that kind of thing uh and that promise and the feeling that, uh, which is the way we teach it in a lot of ways, that racial oppression had ended with uh, with that with those accomplishments, and now we realize that it has not. Yeah, there's... and that the racial barriers that we see now are still the result of a kind of entrenched uh, racial injustice in all kinds of areas of life, in the economy, in the, the social structures, educational system tax system, lots of other things. Certainly in housing as well, and and very sophisticated, well, more sophisticated voter suppression laws, which have actually changed the result of elections. I mean, it's not Jim Crow, but it's voter suppression. And in 1919, another hot issue, and one that is unfortunately, surprisingly, way less than resolved, is immigration. You know, we were always, America has thought of ourselves, and it has been, a nation of immigrants. The countries of origin in 1919 were were different from today. Which were the, and I couldn't say this on the radio if the president hadn't used this word, which were the shithole countries and cultures of 100 years ago? Well, the the targets of the sort of anti-immigrant wave uh, were number one, uh, so the Eastern and Southern Europe Slav, Slavic countries and Jews from the Russian Empire who were immigrating in large numbers in the first decade or so of the twenty, the last decade of the nineteenth century and the first decade of the twentieth century, up until the beginning of World War One. Uh, 
and then, especially on the West Coast, Asian immigration, immigration from China and Japan, uh, which had already, I mean, the Chinese were blocked out, legally blocked out, back to the 1880s. So a lot of the most inflammatory rhetoric was of, of that period was actually directed at the East Asians, Chinese and Japanese, the yellow peril and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, you know, it's funny, but it's 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 terrible, really. Um, and you, you cite from 100 years ago some interesting qu- quotes from a group I'm glad I had not heard of until I read your article called the Immigration Restriction League. Who were they, and what are those quotes? Is there anybody talking like they did now? Oh, I think that, yes, if you read their document, their their statements, you can hear a lot of the same things that are said, in some similar in, in import and, to some extent, even in language. Uh, today, the Immigration League, the Immigration Restriction League, was formed by actually a group of Harvard alums, uh, in in the 18, I forget whether it was late 1880s or the early 1890s, it had been around for some time by the time 1919 came along, and was quite an influential voice in the immigration politics of that era. You know, in, in between uh, 1900 and 1915, we had about 15 million immigrants arrive in the United States. And that's kind of comparable, and that's because they're comparable in pr- proportionately to the immigration that we've had in the last 20 or 30 years in, the, in this country. And, and it generated a similar set of fears and resentments and, and opposition and, and sort of nativist uh, response, which the Immigration Restriction League embodied. And they were close to Henry Cabot Lodge, who the senator, then the senator from Massachusetts, who was the leading political voice against for, for a much more restrictive immigration policy. So they were a pretty influential group. I imagine so. Now, unfortunately, we, see, we hear a lot of echoes of that today. And, and you've written uh, a lot of the, the, the importance of a country's immigration laws. It's, it does say a lot about who we are. And we've always taken pride, again, as being a nation of immigrants. And talk more about what our immigration laws say about who we are as as a country uh, and, you know, our American traditions, traditions and ideals and the foundations of, of liberty and just who we are and, and how we are seen in the world. I mean, we used to take such great pride that we were the beacon of freedom for, for oppressed people across the world. and And what does that... You know, 1919, yeah, we didn't want immigrants from certain areas, and here it is, 2019, and the president and his uh, base don't want immigrants from, from other particular areas. So what does that say you know, about, about who we are, our identity as a country? Well, <laughs> uh, to, to, to stay in 1919 or in the, that, that era for a minute, uh, that was the year that uh, Congress changed hands from de- under President Wilson was the president, uh, and Congress had been Democratic up until ni- through 1918, but then it changed hands in 1919, and the chairman of the Immigration Committee was a, a congressman named Albert Johnson of Washington State, who was a leading voice 
in the anti-immigration movement, and he was the principal author of a reform, sweeping reform of the immigration system, which sharply cut back total immigration. Didn't it, it went into full effect for several years later, in 1924? Although there were some inter, intermediate changes that occurred in, in between, uh, and the, 20, the 1924 Act was set up a system based on quotas. Mm-hmm. And the quotas were based on the proportion of the population back to the 1890 census. So you still had large majority who were from northern and western Europe, from the British Isles, from sure. Scandinavia, Germany, and to some extent, hmm. places like that. But many fewer from eastern Europe and southern Europe, from Italy and, and Russia and places like that, where immigrants the countries, right? in the intervening years had been coming in at a great rate. So the quota system worked very harshly against those undesirables from mm-hmm. southern and eastern Europe. And that remained in effect until 1965, uh, where the quota system was still in effect really? for you know, another 40-plus 40, 40 years uh, after the, the 1924 law was passed. And after I finished writing this piece, I, somebody asked me, well, what changed, what, what produced that sort of liberal change in the 60s? And I didn't know. I had really not, I knew about the law, but I didn't know what the circumstances were. So I went and looked. Yeah, what'd you find? And I found that that was also a fascinating history. Uh, and some other, a uh, no, whole other set of echoes, because in 1952, Congress did pass another immigration law called the, the McCarran-Walter Law, which was also quite restrictive and discriminatory. Yes. Uh, and this part, I knew that, but I didn't know that President Truman vetoed that bill when it was passed, and then the Congress passed it over his veto. And after that, Truman appointed a presidential commission on immigration and naturalization, and the commission was headed by uh, a guy named Philip Perlman, who was his, the U.S. Solicitor General. And they went around the country and had a bunch of hearings, uh, largely listening to religious organizations, the big you know, the National Council of Churches and, and the Catholic bishops and, and that kind of group. And they came out with a report that's, that was very liberal and, and much more generous, advocating much more generous immigration policies. And in that report, in the introduction, they say that immigration law has two functions. First, it should regulate the admission and naturalization of aliens, in the best interest of the United States. And second, it should, they said, it should properly reflect the traditions and fundamental ideals of the American people in determining whom we shall welcome to a participation of all our rights and privileges. This is 1950, January 1953, that this report was issued. So what are we talking? Almost 60, you know, more than 60 years ago. And here's some of the things that they said, and these sound like things that could be said today Uh in response to the the present anti-immigration wave. Uh, They said the second function of immigration policy uh, is the reflection of American traditions and ideals, which the commission would state, they said, as follows. And here are a couple of examples. The immigration law is a key to whether Americans today believe in the essential worth and dignity of the individual human being. It's, excuse me, it's a clue to whether we really believe that all people are entitled to those unalienable rights 
for the preservation of which our nation was created. It's a gauge of our faithfulness to the high moral and spiritual principles of our founding fathers. And they go on to say, I'm excerpting a little bit here, but the immigration law is an index of the extent of our acceptance of the principle that tyranny is forever abhorrent and that its victims should always find asylum in the land of the free. Hmm. It tests whether we continue to believe that the home of the brave should offer a promise of opportunity to people courageous enough to leave their ancestral homelands to search for liberty. It's a measure of our fidelity to the doctrine upon which this country was founded, the right of free men to freedom of movement. And here's another one. The the immigration law is a yardstick of our approval of fair play. It's a challenge to the tradition that America... That they're talking about McCarran-Walter here, about the discriminatory immigration policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it says... Uh, it's a challenge to the tradition that American law and its administration must be reasonable, fair, and humane. Uh, wow. And then the, the immigration law, and then they go on, is an image in which other nations see us. It tells them how we really feel about them and their problems, <laughs> and not how we say we do. It's also an expression of the sincerity of our confidence in ourselves and our institutions. An immigration law which reflects fear and insecurity makes a hollow mockery of confident world leadership. Immigration policy is an important and revealing aspect of our foreign policy. And so on and so forth. There's lots more in that in that vein. And you, you read those words, it, wow. it, would, it would be in no way, they would sound in no way unusual or peculiar to read them in, in today's newspaper. Except that we're doing, I mean, we've come very far away from welcoming and dignity. Well, that's what yeah, that's what the commission was saying yeah. some years ago, and they were they were right. That's yeah. amazing how well again you know we choose not to learn from history over and over and over again, and this this hate and tyranny that that we're projecting into the world. Boy, is that ever a different image? And as you say, I mean, it, it, as these guys were saying. Uh, and I assume they were all guys at the time in the 50s, that uh, uh, we project one image, but we do something else. That's that's not good for our long-term strength and security. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about, uh, oh, comparing 2019 with 1919, which was very, very anti-immigrant from certain undesirable countries back then to today and a bunch of other things as well. Our guest today is Arnold Skip Isaacs, who's written a an article called Looking Back at 1919, Immigration, Race, and Women's Rights, Then and Now. And you mentioned uh, this Congressman Albert Johnson of Washington, whom I had never heard of, which is fine with me, uh, but certainly a, a white supremacist and uh, anti-immigrant. Can he be fairly compared to our current president's declaration that our country is full? Is that too much of a stretch? Oh, I don't think that's a stretch at all. I think that that's what the the sort of racial and religious bigotry was more honestly expressed <laughs> and more openly expressed back then. Today, it's more much more often coded, although not so much when you're talking about Muslims, uh, open expressions of hostility oh, and... Well, yeah. Uh, disparagement of Muslims is still pretty much part of the mainstream discourse, or to some extent, anyway. Uh, but other forms, 
of sort of blatant racism we don't hear yeah. as explicitly as we used to. But the underlying attitudes uh, are obviously the same. After that 1924 quota law was passed, the Senate co-sponsor with Johnson uh, was Senator David Reed of Pennsylvania. And he, after the law was passed with these quotas in it, Reed said, uh, he, you know, he made no bones about the, 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 the reason for the law. He said, the racial composition of America at the time is thus made permanent. Well, I don't think you would hear <laughs> President Trump or the Republicans in Congress or most of the at least mainstream anti-immigration types saying something in those words quite that explicitly. Right. But I think that the the, the attitude is exactly the same. It's, it's uh, you know, I picked out a quote from representing that there was a quote from the uh, from uh, Laura Ingram on Fox News, uh, who who got into a certain amount of hot water. This was just last year, last August, August 2018, when she when she said that immigration had contributed to massive demographic changes in the U.S. population, and she said in some parts of the country it does seem it seems like the America we know and love doesn't exist anymore. And when she was criticized for this, she denied that she was talking about. Uh, racial or ethnic identity, but I can't see how else you could possibly interpret those words. Demographic change, America we know and love doesn't exist anymore. It that was, means yeah, it was so open a hundred years ago. America, the traditional America. Yeah, that that you know, white Protestant dominated country. I mean, it was just people could express that openly. But now, you know, we use sending troops down to one particular border and razor wire, cutting off cutting off access to legal asylum requests. It's it's more subtle, but it's it's the same thing. Is and if you talk to a lot of the people, the base Trump's base that goes to his bizarre rallies, I'm fairly confident that they say yeah we don't want those those people in here you know we're we're a white protestant country and and the hatred it was there in 1919 more openly and less so now uh interesting you know I, 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 though a bit more subtle you say this some 90 years after the johnson reed act became law that though the president and his boosters like alabama's jeff sessions former senator jeff sessions May never say it out loud with regard to racial composition of America. You assert that there can be no doubt that consciously or not, that is exactly what they want to achieve. A hundred years ago, interesting. Another interesting comparison from 1919 to 2019 is that is what you call a phobic fear of foreign-born terrorists. Most, I mean, the impression I think that most people have is that that fear that's been whipped up and manipulated came after 9-11. In what ways was that phobic fear of foreign-born terrorists present 100 years ago? Well, that, that's another uh, case of sort of echoes that, that really do at least give me kind of chills up and down my spine because they were so close. But in the, in the early 20th century, there was a fair amount of terrorism, some of it, quite a bit of it associated, which is also true today, with domestic terrorism in those days involved with sort of a radical labor movement, the, the Wobblies and, and the, you know, the IW, oh, yes. Workers of the World, and there were bombings and, and that kind of thing. 
And then there was also uh, a, a strain of violent anarchism. Yes. And that was largely associated with, although not exclusively, with a group, a specific group, uh, that were followers of an Italian anarchist uh, named Galliani. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and the, the followers came from the Italian immigrant community, so the Italians were looked on as, as suspected or possible perpetrators of terrorist acts. And then in, in, during in the First World War, when national security and all that was, you know, a, sort of a, a major concern, yeah. and then came the Russian Revolution. And so and immigrants arriving from Russia, and particularly Jews who were identified more commonly with the, the radical forces in, in Russia, and that was a new, new news. And they, too, were seen as a possible threat of violent revolution and, and terrorism and so on. And the language that was used and the measures that were taken were very similar. Again, somewhat cruder then than they are now. But there was a rash of attempted bombings in 1919, carried out by, they didn't kill anybody, but they, they prop targeted some fairly prominent uh, officials of one sort or another, including the then Attorney General of the United States, who was a guy named Palmer. Yes. And those were these, uh, this was from this Italian or Italian-American uh, anarchist group. And Palmer unleashed something that were called the Palmer Raids, in which they rounded up some thousands of suspected anarchists and labor agitators and all kinds of people. And it was amazingly similar to the the sort of first wave of sweeps and arrests and deportations after September 11th. Remember NCERS, the, the, the program to register all immigrants from, I think it was 23 Muslim countries and North Korea. Right. And that was followed by the expulsion of something they didn't. They didn't. In Sears, it's been fairly clearly, solidly established. They didn't find a single terrorist, not one. But they found a lot of people with sort of clerical mistakes or or deliberate concealment in their immigration status. So they they kicked out a lot of people. Something like ninety thousand uh, deport expulsions from the country. If I'm, I think I'm remembering that figure correctly. And it was just. It was eerily similar to the Palmer raids in 1919. Uh, yeah, targeting specific uh, immigrant yeah. groups, questionable immigrant groups. I mean, the fear, exactly. the fear that's whipped up—it's just uh, causes a lot of damage. And Frank, I'm not remembering Sacco and Vanzetti what year that was, but these guys were Italian, and, mm-hmm. and they were charged with a killing in Brockton, Massachusetts. There was no connection. They were, in fact, anarchists, but there was no actual connection to the crime. But they were executed anyway. That was a, that was a part of it. You know, just the fear. Yeah, I don't. I think one of them. I think it was in the twenties. There is some possibility that he was involved, and then the other one not. I I don't remember the circumstances. Yeah, that was a little bit later. That was in the very early twenties, but it's certainly in the same era and the same historical. Yeah. Well, as we as we environment. Yeah, we say. I mean, the '60s didn't end in 1970. You know, yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't right. doesn't happen quite that way. Certainly, you know, 1919. Well, you talked about the law that went into effect in 1924. It's it's the same uh, basic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you say today's rhetoric rhetoric is about the 
threat of violent Islamist extremism. In the 50s, it was godless, monolithic communism, you know, just looking under the beds Mm -hmm. to see who was a a communist. I remember some of the uh, cartoons on TV. I was kind of young at the time about the, the iron boot coming in. In 1919, what were the scare stories about? I wonder if there were profiteers from this manipulation of fear back then as there were in the Red Scares in the 50s and and even now? Well, I mean, there there was definitely a Red Scare. Oh, yeah. In in, 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 in 1919 as a direct result of the Russian Revolution and and communist revolutions that occurred elsewhere in Europe. There was was a fairly strong communist uprising in Germany. Oh, true. uh, After the the end of the First World War uh, and in various other... Uh, countries around Europe, and there was a strong anarchist and and. But who profited from it? Do you think? I mean, you know, here, you know, there's various different uh, uh, parts of the military-industrial complex that, uh, uh, and you know, security organizations that that profit from whipping up that fear. I wonder if there was anything like that in '19. Maybe not. Well, if you mean commercially profiting, yeah. I you know, I just don't know. That's not a, a question that I've looked at. But I did discover or learn one. <laughs> Curious thing was that the the Palmer raids, the Red Scare of 1919, had a kind of a, a lasting effect that I also didn't know about. But the the guy, the Justice Department lawyer, who Attorney General Palmer put in charge of that of the, of that whole program, was J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> who was then I think 29 years old or something like that. He was a fairly young lawyer in the Justice Department, and he conducted or was sort of the supervisor of that whole period and then became the what there this was before the Federal Bureau of Investigation existed right. formally under that name but when it was created officially a few years later Hoover became and as everybody knows was the director for I forget 50 some years wasn't a he a long time uh, right and the mentality of the yes. Palmer raids and the red scare and all that kind of thing and the the sort of deliberate flouting of uh or sort of simply oblivious to constitutional protections and civil liberties and so on. And then the other, so he was one sort of legacy of uh, 1919 who had a big impact on the evolution of America right up until he died, I think, in 1972, didn't he, right into the Nixon administration? Something like that. Yeah, that's right. I think so. And the other one, the American Civil Liberties Union, and I didn't know this either, was founded as a direct result of the Palmer raids. That was the the reason that the organizers got together and formed the ACLU uh, and sort of created this organization that was trying to preserve and defend civil liberties in the country. And of course, they have remained, are, have continued to be for a hundred years. I guess the actual founding was in 1920, but the, the events of 1919 was what propelled it. So for 99 years, the ACLU has been a very significant actor in the the debate, the national debate and discussion and, and controversy over civil liberties and over the conduct of law enforcement. Well, when you think national security, when you think about you know the vision of American identity, on one side you have the you know racist, basically you know white Protestant male rule over everybody else, and the other side you have the people who actually understand the Constitution and, and you know, uh, th- that's a significant thread as well. There's never just one thing going on in history. There's always a whole bunch of different directions going on at the same time 
in my opinion. And again, if you just tuned in, dear listener, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We're talking about some real threats to democracy that uh, were there 100 years ago in 1919 and are still there now. We're talking with our guest today, Arnold Skip Isaacs, who's written a widely published article called Looking Back at 1919, Immigration, Race, and Women's Rights uh, Then and Now. Um, at, let's see, 1919 was a big year for the rights of women. In what ways? And tell us about that, if you would, please. Well, that was the year the Women's Suffrage Amendment was adopted, or it was in, passed by Congress. It was ratified, finally given, got final ratification the following year in 1920, but it passed the House and Senate uh, in 1919, uh, giving women the right to vote. And, of course, that was a huge step forward in in women's rights and unlike many of the other things that we've been talking about so far uh you know something that that has that echoes today that has a positive ring to it a hundred years later we have what 60 or I, I i have those numbers but i don't have them in front of me but 60 or 70 women in congress and an unprecedented number of women running in the last congressional election last year and i believe six women running for president on on the Democratic side, yeah, declared yeah. candidates and so on. So another big sort of leap forward uh, on women's role in politics. And yeah, women had been very, very active against American entry into the First World War. And uh, somehow they gained strength and gained voice back in uh, the teens and 1919, and and eventually, it took a it was a long time coming for for uh, the women's right to vote. And of course, there were people back then who were you know they didn't want women to have that right. And I I note with interest and alarm over in Spain actually there's a a new party rising there which actually is quite open about wanting to keep women down and that uh, rape is actually okay. This is a group called Vox, a far-right group that was uh, a continuation of uh, Francisco Franco, the dictator over there. But we're talking about America. Uh, you know, I, but, but these ideas, I mean, there are still people who think white men should rule, and, and there are some women who are actually accepting of that in that other party and it's it's sad but it seems to be true one of the well i mean women are at then and now we're certainly on all sides of all kinds of issues yeah plenty of women, women were quite prominent in the prohibition movement well yes which was braided uh quite tightly with the anti-immigration movement there was a lot of anti-immigration rhetoric that went along with the prohibition rhetoric because you know these italians Come, come over and bring their wine, and Russians bring in, you know, hard-drinking Russians and so on. Uh, and they viewed the immigrants as, as undermining the morality uh, of the country, and prohibition was also produced or, or, or went along with the politicization of religion in ways that are also <laughs> sound a little familiar when you look at the the politicization of religion in, in American politics now. Well, tell us about that, if you would, please. And there were also, let's not forget the Germans, they drank a lot, too. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> Prohibition was not exactly popular. 
No. Uh, and it got repealed. Yeah, finally. I forget. in 36, I think. Thir- in or maybe 33. Earlier than that, but it was 35. like, you know, 13 or 14 years was as long as it lasted. But And it was widely disobeyed when it oh, was enforced. Yeah. But I think that the, 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 the politics of prohibition right. was a little bit similar. I mean, the, none of these parallels are exact, but right. it was a little bit similar to the politics of abortion. Same. It was a very sort of Christian religious uh, idea or ideology that, that led to the, the, the temperance movement. And this also went on for a long time, like the women's suffrage movement. Uh, and it kind of pitted old-fashioned religion against sort of more modern or more liberal or more diverse, or whatever word you want to choose, uh, religion. Uh, religious identities that were that uh, that came along with immigration. You know the immigration and the uh, that that the people were re- reacting or that the, the wave uh, of resistance created in in around 1919 and in the early 20s. But that brought that was the the origin of most of the Jewish population of the United States. I mean, the, which would, there were there were Jews here before then, but the numbers were much smaller. Right. And then a great increase in the Catholic population. You had a big influx of Irish immigrants who were Catholic back in the 1850s and 60s. But then in the in the 1890s, you began to get many, many more from Italy and from Poland uh, and from Catholic, you know, Slovakia and places like that in, in Eastern Europe. So the, the religious landscape in this country changed. And the not just the doctrine, but the the culture and the folkways and the attitudes that went with it that, you know, were sort of diffuse, uh, that a country that had 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 a kind of more more easily defined and unified religious identity, that identity was now being changed. And I think that's very similar uh, Mm. to what we're going on now. I was going to say a few minutes ago, I think it's not quite as simple as saying that that we, we are talking about hate. Hatred is part of it. Yeah. But I think there's a whole other element that is not quite the same thing, which is the feeling of the loss of dominance. Yeah. And the sort of the traditionally dominant sectors of the population, you know, white, male, Christian. Uh, in all of those respects, they feel like they've lost or that their dominance is, thre- is under threat. And I think that feeling is, in a lot of places, a lot of cases, you know, maybe not even entirely on, the, on a conscious level, sort of on an unconscious level. I think that the reaction to sort of gender diversity is, is a big part of that. Oh, true. You know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think it's all a matter of hatred. Mm, okay. Uh, at all, but I think that it it it's sort of a, a challenge to the established order of things. I'm old enough to remember when, you know, the, the concept of gay rights didn't even exist. It no. wasn't talked about. It wasn't anything that <laughs> I ever gave any thought to. Not at all. No. Uh, and well, you the- know, changes like that are not comfortable uh, for everybody or for a lot of people. Well, I, I- think that that feeling. I don't. I don't. You know. I didn't hate homosexuals right. when I was in my teens. I didn't think enough. I didn't 
think enough about them to hate them. There was no consciousness <laughs> didn't back pay then. Pay enough attention to them. Right. It's like in the 19- nineteen. But I didn't have any concept of of you know their uh, status and and what it would what what it would mean to live right. Right. in America in nineteen. I'm I'm I guess a little older a little older than you are, but yeah, not maybe. too much. Uh, I was I. I was in my twenties in the in the nineteen sixties. Yeah, I was just uh, in my and teens. I don't you know I don't think it ever crossed my mind to think what it would be like to, to in those days to be a homosexual in America in nineteen forties and fifties. Well, I I think it's there's a lot to it that I mean in the in the fifties you didn't I mean people didn't think about black people for example you know white people just they were kind of invisible and certainly you know, homosexuals were way less visible than that. I mean, at least black people, yeah. they, you know, they have the color of their skin. But, you know, they were, it was just so simple. The good old days when the whites, white Christians, Protestants dominated. I, you know, I, I accept your, you know, it's not so much hatred. You're right, because people would say, no, they don't hate anybody. But the domination, the white Christian male domination you know, it was there back then, and to have these foreign influences coming in from Germany and Russia and Eastern Europe, and now we got, you know, those. There's they well as as the the president has said, you know, they bring drugs, they're rapists and criminals. It's the same kind of fear, you know, like those other people. You know, mm-hmm. it's just those other people. It goes on and on and on. It was there in 1919. It's certainly there now and and i wonder about you know again you just kind of briefly mentioned abortion how that might fit into uh and today's you know the the politicization politicization of religion and you know it's still i i had thought abortion was settled back in the mid 80s boy was i wrong and i they just heard a, a more sophisticated ad on the radio today talking about uh you know the evils of of abortion. Where, how does that reflect the politic, politicization? Boy, that's a hard word to say. Of religion that was there in 1919. Well, as I say, I, 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 I'm a little hesitant to sort of say too much about this because it's not something I've looked at really carefully at all. Uh, but it's just a traditional gut. conservative Christian religion was a huge factor in the whole prohibition movement, the whole temperance movement, the Women's Christian, Women's Christian Temperance Union was right. the name of the, the, sort of the leading public group. I'm sure there were others, but that was the sort of the You're national right. yep. face of, of the prohibition movement and Christian, right? Yep. Oh, yeah. And I think that, and so there, a big part of their message was that, you know, God didn't want you to drink alcohol. And that that they were sort of protecting and and defending and and advancing the cause of of uh, God's will and uh, and opposing sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that the you know the nature of the issues is different. Right. 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 And sure. abortion is is a sort of a harder one from a public policy point of view because. Uh, abortion in the minds of the opponents is an act of murder. Yeah, and it's pretty hard to say to people who believe that. Oh yeah. Well, you should give people the right to make their own decisions. Although that's that's where the country is, and that's where the courts are, and that's where you know a huge amount of popular opinion is on that. But it's it's pretty hard to. St- 
stand there and say to somebody who thinks it's murder that it ought to be oh, right. that you believe it, it ought to be legal. And the argument about uh, prohibi- about alcohol didn't quite have that sort of stark uh, an issue, but their literature is full of depictions of you know suffering children being abandoned and suffering wives and children being abused by drunkard husbands no, and this kind that of was thing. A fact, yeah. And the, the the great social cost of 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 alcohol, and that this was proof to them that it was a sin, and that that God wanted it wanted you to not to be able to buy a drink. Well, in I the think United States. They they also uh, I, I I believe it was uh, uh, Vice President uh, Pence who said something about uh, you know wanting uh, gay people to repent that you know it's against the laws of God. And I imagine there was certainly a lot of that same kind of sentiment a hundred years ago that, you know, there's a certain right way to do things. And if you don't do it that way, you're a sinner. And that's pretty, pretty divisive, I would, I would have to say. And, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think that's where the country is now. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here, we are talking about looking back a hundred years ago at 1919, I guess is Skip Isaacs. He's got an article called Looking Back at 1919, Immigration, Race, and Women's Rights, Then and Now. And when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, there was a large and wide middle class. It, there really was. That's gone today. What about income inequality in 1919? Was that also similar to today's situation? You know, again, that's something I have not looked into in much detail, but income inequality, 1919 was sort of a threshold year for a very sharp rise in income inequality. Over the decade of the 1920s, uh, in way in the, the numbers look quite similar. That is, the, you know, the rate of increase of the, the, the amount of uh, national income that was earned by the top 1 or 3 or 5% or however you want to measure it looks very much like uh, the last 20 years that we've lived through until, until now, when in- inequality was very, very, grew very, very steeply. And 19, it hadn't really taken, sort of bitten in 1919, but it was, that was just around the corner. <laughs> so it was. And one of the developments that was new back then is not so new anymore. Motor cars, automobiles were mm-hmm. relatively new on the scene in 1919. They were pretty uh, revolutionary. I, I certainly, before your article, had never heard about the U.S. Army's great motorized convoy across America. Tell us about that, please, and the legacy. That is, I mean, that's a little bit aside from, in some ways, from the issues we've been talking about. Yeah, but it's, it's sort of a nice Fascinating thing. one. There were a lot of, you know, the, the automobile came came along there were a lot of automobiles in the United States by by nineteen nineteen. And they'd been made here for, I don't know, twenty years or so. So the automobile itself was not brand new, but what there wasn't was much of an intercity road system. The roads were all kind of low automobiles were local transportation, so that in Baltimore or Boston or wherever it was, you know, you had roads that sort of radiated out from the center of the city and got people from one place in town to another. And then they'd peter out in some farmer's field 20 miles out. Uh, and, the, and the major intercity transportation was, was rail. 
And after the all of this, there was a big movement that began actually before the First World War, orchestrated in a very modern way. This I didn't discover this in connection with this article, but I did some work on this a long time ago. Uh, the automobile industry and associated industries like the tire industry uh, realized that they, they, the, the only way they were going to expand was to make the, uh, the motor vehicle intercity transportation. So they, there was a big campaign to improve the road system. And this was called the Lincoln Highway Association. Their, their sort of vehicle was a movement to, to build a, a highway from coast to coast. And that, that highway still exists. It's U.S. Route 30. And that was the Lincoln Highway, and that was was in the imagination of uh, automobile industry folks back in 1913. And after now, all of this came to a halt during the war, and automobile manufacturing, as mm-hmm. in the Second World War, was sort of shifted over to defense yeah. uh, industry and that kind of thing. But after the after the war was over, the Lincoln Highway Association, this private group, private sector group. Talked the army, and the army wanted to publicize its motor tra- new the new division of motor transport that they had. So they, they they got together and they jointly ran this convoy from Washington D.C. to San Francisco. It took them fifty six days. Mm. That'll tell you something about the condition of the roads. Mm. The average speed uh, that they were able to go across the country was six miles an hour, mm-hmm. <laughs> something like that, mm-hmm. uh, and. They took, I forget now how many, 70 or 80 vehicles and several hundred men uh, in, and drove across the country. And most of these, especially when you got west of Pennsylvania someplace, mm. these were like uh, horse, you know, oh, yeah. carriage tracks. Uh, hate to be uh, and, in the rain. But they got a lot of publicity. It generated a lot of support. And one of the, the, the soldiers who made that trip was a lieutenant colonel named uh, Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh-huh. who was, was, you know, had been commissioned, uh, had had that rank as a result of service in the First World War. And 40 years later, right. or whatever, what I'm, I don't know about my arithmetic is, but whenever when Eisenhower became president, uh, one of his achievements was the, the initiation of the interstate highway system. Yes. And when, I, when, he, when he proposed that, or when he, got, when he endorsed it, he mentioned that convoy. He re- he remembered and he wrote about it in his memoirs as one of the inspirations for this national highway system. And, if- and the people don't think about this now as they don't about a lot of other things. But the the transformation of American life and culture by the automobile culture, which really didn't exist in 1919, and which by in a very short time, ten ten twelve years later, to give you just one example. That made the regional high school possible. Before they were roads, and before you had sort of basic motor vehicle transport, you know, kids on farms, they had, if they wanted to go to high school, they had to go and board in town someplace. They couldn't get from their farm to a high school anywhere. Yeah. But by 19, you know, by 1929, you had school buses, and you had you had a sort of a whole change in the horizons and the, and the nature of the country. My dad was born in 1910 in New York City. And I remember this not in connection with this. It was long years before I learned anything about this trans- this convoy. But I remember my dad telling me once that when he was a little boy, he said most of the traffic in New York was horse-drawn. 
what he remembered. There, as, motor vehicle, there were motor vehicles, but right. the majority of vehicles going around sure. on the city streets of New York City were <laughs> pulled by horses. Made for messy roads. And so young Dwight David Eisenhower was there to see the birth of the creation of a national transportation infrastructure. Right. Now, 100 years later, we have a very deteriorating national infrastructure and you know I, I would hope that people would be talking about hey let's invest in our infrastructure and build a lot of you know jobs and and do that and perhaps have uh, you know modern train systems the infrastructure was uh, was born largely then so just to wrap up here we are a hundred years after 1919 discuss if you could uh, in what ways does a look at that provide useful illumination for today? What can we learn from that? What is illuminator from that that perhaps we have learned, perhaps we should learn? Wow. <laughs> Your okay. big question. <laughs> we got a few minutes. Uh, I, I guess that I'm not sure it is directly from this sort of body of information that I accumulated, but more generally, I mean, it seems to me that uh, from this and many other things, I've learned that history doesn't go, doesn't move in a straight line. Never, right. And it swerves forward and backward. Oh, yeah. Uh, and the right and left, and this, not, not politically, but uh, geographically speaking. Uh, and we go from periods of enlightenment and sort of more generous public attitudes and more generous public policy into periods of more selfish and more nativistic and more uh, uh, less generous policy and attitudes. And we sort of oscillate between those two directions. And we are now in one, the, the mm -hmm. course that we're on reminds, reminds us a lot of where we were 100 years ago. But, you know, the immigration law of 1924 was blatantly discriminatory and, and cruel and inhumane. But it was liberalized, and we've had now 30, 40 years of quite liberal immigration policies, and now we're going through another period where those may be uh, restricted, but that, that probably won't last either. Sometimes, sometimes we can learn from history. And I, I always like to do that, and we'll be talking more about history on an upcoming program. If people are interested in uh, reading more, your website, www.arnoldisaacs.net, correct? Yep. Thank you so much for shedding some light on it. And, boy, if we could learn from history and, uh, you know, address this. It, it's amazing to me how many of these same issues still come up. Fear of, of people from other countries, racism goes on and on and on. And uh, in some ways, we've we've moved ahead a little bit. But you're right. History certainly does not move in a straight line, despite what you and I may have been taught in elementary school. <laughs> the idea of progress. Yeah, progress. Sure. Doesn't happen. I mean, it does, but it's also regression as well. Thank you so much for being with us, Skip Isaacs. And uh, we'll look back at 100 years ago. Thank you. Thank you for having me. When I'm walking through the wood the other day And the world was a carpet laid before me The birds were bursting and the air smells sweet and strange Seem about 
hundred years ago Mary and I, we were set up on the gate Just gazing at some bright light in the sky What tender days we had, no secrets in the way Where I seem about a hundred years ago Yeah.